0: We are here for part three on what does the Bible say about slavery. I want to start right back where we left off in Exodus 21, because something I failed to mention, and some of you may have been having angst about over the last week. The woman who is sold as a slave by her father to this person, it seems that this is for marriage, either to the master or one of the sons. And the reason that's probably the reason most scholars say, why she's not allowed just to go free at the end of six years because she's married now she's part of this family now Uh, that's exodus 21. Uh, read through it see if you agree that is the overwhelming consensus of scholars i still wish it had been written a little differently but i'm not in charge of history i'm I'm just a reporter all right it is it's an arranged marriage and therefore it's not She's not working as a wife for six years to get free. No, this is a life thing. However, there are, there are other laws. She's not allowed to be sold to a foreigner. Uh, it's, um, she must be treated as a full daughter. I mean, there are, it's just amazing. You can read one passage and say, this is progressive. This is enlightened. This is wise. And this is horrifying. And I hate this. Same passage. I once heard a woman trying to teach her view of the scripture to someone, and it was a difficult scripture. And She was a wife of an elder and highly respected and a good person, but she leaned forward and, and her argument to this one was God, God wouldn't give us a book that was hard to understand. And I'm going, I beg to differ. I think it's brutally difficult. Have you ever talked to theologians? You ever seen a theological library? And if you're here saying, I just need the Bible, nobody has just the Bible. You have also all of your teachings, all of your context, all of your history, all of that to use to interpret your scripture. And that's why it's a different interpretation than a person next to you, because they have different eyes, different chemicals and a different life. One of the, talked to a man, recently uh, who was being blessed because people are moving into his community. In Tennessee, people are just streaming here from other places. It's, it's a freer state. It's a, and so people decide they want to do that. Uh, and he was saying, it's a real blessing. And then he hesitated and I just started smiling and I said, but they bring their past with them. And my past, I don't mean politics. Don't, don't try to make this a politic thing. I'll put it a different way. I worked for almost two years for a church that was a military based church and it had a a lot of people from the community. But I mean, literally overnight, half of your congregation could be gone and a new hundred people there. And you know, people would say, Oh, we're getting new people in, but they came in with their ideas about everything. And so as you were moving, you know, your congregation toward a particular point, you know, all of a sudden, boom, you're back over here or worse. We love the people. The problem is that people bring their stuff with them. All right, so um, we do that when we read scripture as well. The system in, in ancient Israel was set up to protect the poor so that they could work it off and that they could get away out of debt. That's a, that's a remarkable good thing to work. In fact, whenever Uh, whenever somebody needed to be on the public assistance, shall we say, the dole, they got their money from the temple. However, the temple didn't make them come every week or every month with their hands out showing pay stubs to get qualified. The temple was supposed to give them a year, or sometimes two years, all at once. Why? That'll help them get out of debt, maybe buy some land, start a garden, a business, it was to help elevate the poor. The Old Testament is actually brilliant <clears throat> about the laws to help you elevate the poor. <clears throat> so, when we look at this, these these writings, we have to understand this is the best they could do for them. This is the best options they had. <clears throat> Sorry, as soon as I, I'm allergic to the red record button because I'm fine till I hit that. When you read scripture, try not to say, well, this would be horrible for us to live with this. Instead, think about what options they had from about 1200 to 580 BC. This was probably the best options as horrible as it sounds to us. There are other difficult passages. Back to Exodus 21, a chapter which thrills and delights and horrifies. Verses 25 through 26, very graphic. If a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out their tooth, male or female, he has to let them go free. So think about this. Let's say that I enter into debt slavery because... You paid my debt. I had a debt that was crushing. I'm gonna make up weird numbers, all right? Just out of the blue. I I owed a quarter of a million dollars and I had no way to pay back any of it. You decided my labor for six years was gonna be worth that. So you negotiated with the other party and maybe you even bought my debt down, but we're gonna say quarter of a million dollars. So I start working for you. I'm doing my job. But you just get really frustrated because it's taken me too long to figure out how to plant this thing, and you whack me. The tooth comes out. I get to walk. You have to eat your debt because you were dishonorable. You mistreated the person who came to to work with you to work off the debt. Because of that, you eat the debt. The um, The Old Testament has this when and if and uh, it's not about saying it's a normal thing to be beaten. We're not condoning being beaten. What we're saying is there was a protection for the slaves. If you are hurt, you can walk. Now, Jesus seems to address um, the way this works in Matthew 19 very briefly, but there's no physical mistreatment of slaves allowed. It is not condoned. Um, did it happen? Of course it happened, but it wasn't condoned. It wasn't allowed. It was, in fact, illegal under God's law. There is this eye for an eye, and, and I know the old expression, you know, if, if we live an eye and eye, soon the whole world will be blind. That's, that's a master class in not understanding the passage or its context. He is saying you have to limit, you have to limit what damage is done. And that eye for an eye thing, by the way, wasn't a slave thing. That was in common everyday work. You and I get into a road rage thing. You pop me one in the eye and I, you know, I got a broken occipital. I lose the sight in that, that eye. The government would either take your eye or the equivalent in money land possession but they couldn't take your life even if let's say that i were the president to the united states uh, or the dictator of venezuela whatever you want and you were just a common taxi driver no no it's even it was meant to make things fair so that if you struck me i didn't have the right to kill you if you humiliated me i didn't have the right to kill you there there were limits to vengeance and they were very strict there again um, there is another bizarre difficult part here in exodus 21 when a man strikes a slave male or female with a rod and the slave dies under his hand he shall be avenged that means the slave's family his friends they get to come for you master because you killed this guy and that, that, that's murder. It broke the deal. Now one, well, again, wasn't a police force, but there were people and the laws of vengeance were very well known. They'd come for you. However, if the, the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged for the slave is his money. Does this give masters impunity to beat slaves, literally within an inch of their life? As long as you don't kill him, you're good? Absolutely not. As with the verses in 25, 26, this is a conditional clause. By allowing the slave's death to be avenged, the law is treating the slave's life on par with that of the master and any other free Israelite. So eight verses later, murder is established as a capital crime. The slave's life is no less value than the masters. If they survive a day or two, that's actually not a really good translation of the Hebrew. And I know this, not because I know Hebrew, because I do not, but I know people who do. And I have a very, very full contacts list, uh, contacts list, uh, actually a few thousand in there that I go to for when I need experts in different fields. And thank you guys and women for all of those things you've done for me. Here's the point. The translation is literally, "If in a day or two he stands up," which is a colloquialism meaning they're fine. You beat them with a the rod, but there's 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 zero permanent injuries there. Then what happens? Well, you have to look in verses 18, and 19. Whenever two men fight, one cannot work. Very similar to our uh, slave law in verse 21. Then if the man rises again and walks out door with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Okay? So, the master gets, loses control, beats me with his staff. A day or two later, I'm able to get up, walk out, I'm getting better. That, you call off the dogs, they cannot come kill the master. However, if you keep reading, verses 26, 27, the reason he's able to slaves able to get up and walk is because he can go he for he is his money. In other words, the slave is the master's capital investment in debt, losing him chapter 21, Exodus 26 through 27. That's punishment enough. You don't kill the master, but he has to eat the debt because he beat the slave. If he beats the slave and the slave dies, you get to kill the master. If he beats the slave and the slave is able to get up after a couple days, he's able to walk. He's able to go. The master has to eat the debt. He was a um, disreputable man. Most difficult passage, however, in my opinion, is not in Exodus 21, and that's saying something. It's in Exodus 25, verses 44 through 46. Here we go, because now we are going outside of the covenant people. As for your male and female slaves who you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land and they will be your property you may bequeath them to your sons after you after you to inherit as a possession forever you may make slaves over them of them but over your brothers the people of Israel you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly well the bible did. what do we do the bible has an awful lot of protections for israelites who need to enter debt slavery but right here This, this doesn't look good. You're allowed to buy and sell slaves. If they're foreigners, if they come uh, and you, you know, if they're walking through your land, here comes a caravan and they're not Israelites. They're just passing through your land, but they got some slaves. And as you know, you're talking to them as they're going through and you know, you want to buy this rug, you want to buy this pot. Then they say, listen, we got a couple of women over here, a couple of good strong working men over here, you guys need help? This gives the Israelites the right to buy them. And then to make them inheritable so that if I bought them and I died, that my son would have them as his slaves. This is not pretty. It isn't. It looks like the law that protects the Israelites, it most expressly does not exp- uh, protect anybody else. And then you think of Exodus twenty-one sixteen, which expressly forbade any slave trade in Israel. And it looks like these passages did not talk to each other and are at war with each other. I'm not really sure that you can totally explain this away. Although I've seen books that do, and I've, I've had emails already from people saying, if you're getting to this one, here's the answer. If anybody had solved this to the satisfaction of all other people on the planet, we would have known about it by now. This is a struggle. There is, there is a um, chronological arrogance, like I said before, where we tend to look back upon other people and criticize them and saying, well, they didn't, they just weren't very moral people. We would have never done that. Yes, you would have. The the idea that if you had been beamed back and you're born into one of those cultures, but somehow you would have just known all of this was wrong and you wouldn't have taken part in it, it's ridiculous. We are creatures of our culture, history, community, upbringing and our media, left, right, or center, all of us are. And to look back 3000 years ago and say, those horrible people, you can absolutely say what happened you disagree with and that you think that that was awful, but you also have to realize this was their world. This is the world into which God spoke. He did not speak into the Garden of Eden making these rules. He spoke into a a war zone because that's what the ancient world was. It was always a war zone. As soon as anybody got enough money to store up some food to go to fight, that's what they did. All the way up, by the way, through the so-called age of chivalry, which was butchery, rape and slaughter on a massive scale in the name of civilization and often of religion. To, to be children of that. And then to look back at these people and go, those savages, I think we need to be very careful. Um, throwing stones tend to bounce right off and come at you. One option would have been for God just to say, you, you guys never do it. You never allow, you never buy and sell anybody, period. You just stick with the Israelites. But then, <clears throat> Leviticus That's that's not in isolation. Look at chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, here goes the caravan, you shall not do them wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you will love him as yourself. Did you know that was in there? Yes. So can I buy that slave? Yes. Yes. Then how am I to treat that slave? Love them as myself and I am to treat them as if they were a native, an Israelite, one of us. There was no room for racism in this. Uh, Moses married outside what people today would call the Jewish race and whenever his own family criticized him for it, God punished them. God does doesn't do this race dividing thing. Uh, He extends sojourners to the category of slaves. In fact, if you read, um, I am the Lord your God, the Ten Commandments, what does he say? He talks about you were sojourners and I brought you out and he, he, we are all sojourners. So when you see a slave coming through, and the person's trying to sell them, you're really redeeming them from the life with that nation and bringing them into the Israelite family, the family of faith, the people of covenant. And that's what we see. That's what we see whenever Rahab, uh, the harlot and... Uh, the the story of the the battle of Josh uh, Joshua and Jericho ends up in Jesus's line, where Ruth the Moabite ends up in Jesus's line, brought in, treated no different because now they are part of us. We've brought them in. In fact, this uh, we we cannot miss the the language. He or she shall not be wronged. The word wronged has another definition very often used in the Hebrew, oppressed. So in many ways, you're not buying a slave, you're freeing a slave, but they do stick with your family. Why? Cause they got nowhere else to go or be. And so then why, when you die, would they go on to your sons? Because they are still family. They are not cast out. There is never a time in their future when they will be left to fend for themselves. They are now part of the family, and they will be done no wrong. I hope that helps. We will do one more of these. I'll see you next week.